This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Conservative. Constitutional. It's the Andrew Cooper Writer Show, keeping you informed on what's going on right here in Kentucky. And welcome, everybody, to another amazing day right here on the Andrew Cooper Writer Show. Hopefully, everybody's ready to have a fantastic week. I know I am. I've got a big week planned in front of us. I'll let you all know now, as of right now, I am set to interview one and only General Flynn uh, on Tuesday to be aired Wednesday. So if there's ever a reason to make sure you are listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter show throughout this next week, that is a big reason why. Of course, General Flynn is doing an event right here in Kentucky. Uh, in the next few weeks, I'll be covering some details on that this week too as well so if you want to grab tickets you can head on over to wrff well i'm sorry wrf forum ky.org that's wrf forum ky.org click on the upcoming events tab and you'll be able to purchase tickets to the february 19th event uh, where General Flynn will be speaking. So that's one wonderful thing before you. As always, if you want to reach out to the show, feel free to head on over to theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's theandrewshow.com. So recently, as budget has come around, we've seen Bashir really pushing to try to get two things into the budget. Of course, that 11% raise for our K through 12 staff, all staff across the board. You hear them talking about it a lot. There's a lot of issues there, of course. Longtime listeners of the show know that not only does it appear to be unconstitutional because it would necessarily require that the state is giving more funding per student to uh, dis one districts over other districts because some districts obviously pay their teachers more. So an 11% raise spread over the students there would equal out more money given to a district over another district, which would be, um, like I said, unconstitutional, it would appear. But also, it really doesn't solve our other problems. See, Bashir claims that if we just give this 11% raise and also do universal pre-K, that, well, it'll solve all of our educational issues. But of course, we know that this 11% raise won't actually fix it. They're not promising a certain level of, uh, you know, uh, competency. They're not promising certain level of proficiency if we just handed out that 11% raise because they know it isn't true. Bashir's just saying we need to pay our teachers more because obviously 
the teachers in that base has been a huge push behind how he's become and, and got into office. Now, I did a show, I think, last week or two um, that if you're if you're going back to listen to old shows, if you head on over to theandrewshow.com, you can uh, check out old shows on Spotify, iHeart, Pandora, all other podcasting locations. You'll see a show entitled, Do Teachers Get Paid Enough? And in there, I really broke down what teachers get paid. Now, I tweeted last week, um, I said the unsayable. And I think it's incredibly important that we have these conversations. I know so many people want to steer away from talking about teachers' pay and teachers in general, especially here in Kentucky. A lot of people look back to the 2019 defeat of Bevan and point to his comments and things he did about and said about teachers uh, as the reason why he lost. And and there's a, you know, when you lose by 5,000 votes, uh, there's a number of reasons why you lost. You can literally point to all kinds of different things. It's a classic death by a thousand cuts kind of conversation when it's that small of a loss. But a lot of people look at the teachers and say, well, you know, it's those teachers who got Bashir into office, continue to keep Bashir into office, and so we need to not talk about it. And I think that's the wrong thing to do. I think I understand that Republican politicians maybe can't talk about it the way they would like to, but I think we as a community, we as those who, who shape our culture, have got to talk about this idea that teachers are, one, underpaid, not paid enough, and two, uh, that being a teacher is just this awful, horrible job. And I think for two reasons. One, of course, this idea culturally that teaching is such an awful and horrible job um, has always created a call for more and more spending on our K-12 education that is not going to teachers' salaries, but a lot of it, like in this case. Bashir's calling for that 11% increase, but he wants that for all K-12 through staff. So that includes your janitors all the way up to your principals uh, and so on and so forth. That's not just teachers because that's part of the problem. Teachers aren't not paid as much as they'd like to be. Uh, even those school districts, especially when you look at, you know, Louisville school district spending over $20,000 a student, you look in Fayette County public schools spending over $17,000 a student. And you say, how is there not enough money to pay the teachers? And a lot of it is going towards this bloated, out of control administrative staff that we've seen just massively explode and grow over these past several decades. And so one, by allowing that talking point to continue, we're allowing them to to siphon off more of our dollars into a failing K-12 educational system. But the other thing is, is I believe it's also scaring would-be teachers away from the job because the job is actually, I believe, pretty well paid and has a lot of benefits on top of a fantastic retirement system that they have in place that you would never get in the private sector. They are, many teachers are, are certainly paid a fair amount more. When we look at the average bachelor degree holder, uh, in Kentucky, they're making $43,926 a year compared to the average Kentucky teacher making $54,574 a year, and both only require a four-year degree. Now, naysayers, and I tweeted this out on Twitter recently, and a lot of people chiped in. It was one of my bigger posts I've made. A lot of opinions on this, um, but also a lot of likes. But a lot of naysayers will say, well, Andrew, Many teachers have master's degrees. Well, Bevan removed the requirement to have a master's degree, but also just a point of talking here. One, they are paid more for getting that master's degree. Two, of course, the schools offer a lot of loan forgiveness. But three, 
at the risk of sounding, I don't want to say crass, but at the risk of sounding uh, just like a businessman here, I don't care what degrees, how many degrees you have. I care about the job you're being completed. For an example, do we pay a janitor more just because they have a doctorate than we would pay a, a high school graduate janitor? No, because the job doesn't require you to have a doctorate. In the same way that teaching K-12 through education, if all it requires is a bachelor's degree, you going off and getting a master's degree is great for you, and that could be something you do for you, but... If somebody holding a bachelor's degree can do the same job, then you're not actually doing a different job. You're not providing, quote unquote, more value than a person who only has a bachelor's degree. And so therefore, comparing people with masters doing a job that only requires a bachelor's, that's not good data points. We need to be comparing bachelor's degrees uh, holders. And in Kentucky, as I said, the average teacher is making about 10 grand more a year than the average bachelor recipient, working less days. And I know everybody wants to say, oh, we work way more than, I, I know you think we get summers off and every single major holiday and spring break and everything else, but we're working way more days than you think we are. And we work more hours than outside of school, to which I say one, Objectively speaking, you are working less days than everybody else in a in a different job. You just are. I hear you. You may work more than the 180 contract days or so on and so forth, but you are getting several months off a year. There's no denying that. And that is something everybody else isn't getting. That's the first thing. Second thing is, is that everybody else who also holds a salaried position is working outside the office. It's just a thing. It's just a thing everybody has. When you work a salaried job, you're working way more hours than what you are being paid to do. That is just how it works. That's just how it works. I'm sorry that that's the way our current culture is, but you know, you got to work to live, right? It wasn't all downtime back in the days before we had salary jobs and you're just out hunting and gathering either. And so objectively speaking, Teaching is not a low-paid job. It's a pretty high-paid job with a lot of benefits. And the more we continue to speak about this as if it's an awful job, the less teachers we're going to have. An 11% raise is only going to deliver, what, $5,000 more in pay? Maybe $3,000 after taxes? Is that going to fix our K-12 through education system? No. And Bashir peddling it out there like it is out of control. But there's something else he's pushing out there, and that's that heads that that universal pre-K program. We're going to be digging into that after this short break. You're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, and you are back with the Andrew Cooperwriter Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Before the break, we were talking about K through 12 education, Bashir's promise fixes. We were talking about, of course, his promise that paying teachers more, and by paying teachers, he means all staff, 11% more. How that will definitely fix our problems. And we dug into that. As I said, I know this get that gets to be an emotional issue for people. Uh, and that's why I said, if you want to reach out to the show, go ahead and email info at theandrewshow.com. Obviously, there are some comments on Twitter when I t tweeted out that just, just really asked this question. I, I, I tweeted out a, a simple kind of idea here. I said the average bachelor degree holder in Kentucky makes $43,926 a year, working 240 to 260 days a year. The average teacher makes $54,574 a year, working 180 to 190 days a year. How much more do we need to pay teachers in order to achieve better 
academic outcomes. And of course, I had the general way of, you know, you shouldn't attack teachers. Teachers are sacred, blah, 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 blah. And, and I think a lot of politicians buy into that. Um, obviously, I'm not a politician anymore. I've, I've given, I've hung up the old elect, running for office spurs, of course. But I, I think this idea that you can't talk about this, as I said in the last segment, is really troublesome. But uh, on top of that, I, I think it's scaring people away from it. But the, the fact that this tweet had so many people, though, commenting that they agreed with me and liking it shows that this, there's been a real shift in views of our educational system, especially since COVID. I'll give you a perfect example. Um, <laughs> one of the comments we got here is that um, if teachers walked off the job uh, tomorrow... Um, we would all be worse off. They use some expletives, but basically we'd all be messed over um, if teachers walked off the day tomorrow, walked off the job tomorrow, which is just objectively not true. If you remember during COVID, we did have a situation where teachers essentially walked off the job. And of course, uh, they, they were one of the last people as well to go back to work in many situations. So, like, actually, we as a society did go through teachers walking off the job, having to deal with that. And I think that really has changed a lot of the viewpoints of individuals when it comes to talking about our K-12 through education, where it's a ripe time to really have a good talk about this. And like I said, one of the things about teachers not being paid enough, look. I, I know K through 12 teachers. I've K through 12 teachers that work for public school systems here in Kentucky in my family. I also have friends of the family that are nurses. And when the friend of the family who is a nurse found out how much my family member that's a public school teacher was making, including their days off, being real honest here, how many days you get off and everything else, the nurse who, as we all know and think of as a very high paid job now was just shocked was like, that's how much I make if I don't work any overtime and I'm working year round and working just as much of a tiresome job as a teacher would, if not maybe more mentally draining as I'm dealing with people actually literally dying in front of me. And that is not something teachers are having to drain with or are having to deal with. And so I think that conversation, being able to talk about it, but you bring it up and, you know, one of the comments I had was from a teacher that said, I'd love to talk to you from a teacher's perspective about the pay and the problems we face. You've absolutely no idea what you're talking about. Do you know how many hours we spend of our own time working on lesson plans, etc.?" To which I said, every single salary job, as I said in the last segment, also does this. Teachers work hard, but so does everyone else. And they, and then people also don't get summers off. Yes, I get it. Teachers work way more than probably 180 days, but they're objectively speaking, working less than the rest of us. Okay. That was my point. But to go to Bashir's other comment, and, and like I said, I know comments on teachers, always fiery subject, always fiery subject. But Bashir also claims that if we did universal pre-K, it would fix all of our problems. Now, in prior shows, I've mentioned the fact that we already have a pre-K program that is free, government-run, that does target people based upon their income levels, based upon their needs, their financial needs. If you uh, are, are making poverty or a certain amount above poverty, you qualify for free pre-K um, in order to get your kids head started going into school. Now, I mentioned that the same kids who qualify for this program, this free educational program, are the same kids that when they go into K-12 education are struggling the most. 
You know, lower income kids are the ones that are struggling when they go through K through 12 education. When we look at income disparity and in, in income levels, kids who are doing worse in schools typically come from lower income households. But also these lower income households already have free pre-K and it's not fixing the problem. So that in and of itself should tell you that universal pre-K doesn't fix the issues. Also, when you're talking about the taxpayer subsidizing it, it's so funny to hear them talk about school choice and how awful it is as we're just subsidizing rich people's problems. That's exactly what universal pre-K is. It's a school choice type program. These aren't government owned facilities. You have the choice to go to where you want to and the money follows your kid like it would in school choice for K through 12. But on top of that, on top of that, okay, money follows the kid, but also we're already giving free money following the kid education to low income people. So all universal pre-K push that Bashir's pushing for will give more money to higher income earners to pay for their kids' pre-K programs. The very thing they say they're against school choice about. They say you can't pick where you want to go because more kids will end up going to private schools and we don't want that. And if we allow school choice to go forward, well, then we'll end up paying for the education of, at private schools, which already rich people get to have their kids at private schools. And trust me, it's not just rich people at private schools. But anyways, rich, rich parents already get to send their kids to private schools. We're just going to be paying that bill for them. And we're subsidizing then rich people's private education. But you're already, but Bashir on the same hand is pushing for a program that would only subsidize quote unquote rich people's education. But by the way, we're pushing them into programs that don't even work. This is from the Head Start. So it's a federally funded program, Head Start is. This is from Head Start's own website. This is from acf.hhs.gov. And this is where, uh, under their outcomes website, when we look at Head Start's website, it says, since 1965, Head Start programs have reached more than 38 million children and their families. Children enrolled in Head Start programs are more likely to graduate from high school and attend college, have improved social, emotional, and behavioral development, and are better prepared to be parents themselves than similar children who did not attend the program. We're going to put a pause right there, Okay. I want you to hear all these positives, right? Children enrolled in early Head Start programs have significantly fewer child welfare encounters related to sexual or physical abuse between the ages of five and nine than those who don't attend. Research consistently shows a broad array of benefits for children at the end of their Head Start enrollment. While these benefits may appear diminish in early grades, economic benefits emerge as children become adults. So this is what they say. They say kids enrolled in Head Start programs, they don't actually do better in school. Remember, they say that the benefits diminish in early grades. So basically, um, that the, the kids don't actually do better in K through 12 education than kids who don't attend the Head Start program. But what they do do better on is graduating high school, attending college, and they're less likely to have sexual or physical abuse. But there's a causation versus correlation here. Head Start isn't required, okay? It's not like K through 12 education where parents are required to send their kids to it. Head Start programs mean that these people are opting into the program. So what you end up with, the kids attending these Head Start programs, are, yes, they're coming from lower income families, 
but they're the sect of lower income families with parents that actually care about the kids' educational outcome. The very fact that they go through the work of getting them into the Head Start program, where by the way, they normally don't have necessarily public transportation. These aren't public schools. They have to drive and drop the kids off at these programs, so on and so forth. That is filtering out bad parents and you end up with maybe low income earning, but good parents themselves. So while they don't do better necessarily in K through 12 education, the parents themselves do at least see a value in school. So you do see higher high school rate attending college, right? Of course, you're going to see less sexual or physical abuse between five to nine compared to those who don't attend. Because obviously one, if somebody knows they're physically or sexually abusing a child, they're not going to be enrolling them into a government program where another adult's laying eyes on them uh, five days a week unless they have to, right? That's obvious. But two, like I said, you're ending up with parents that just care more. They just care more. They're going to make them graduate high school. They're going to make them attend college, right? They're going to make sure, and because that these parents, that maybe they're low income themselves, but they've learned from their situations, so maybe they push them to go to school, go to college, get good grades, and, and they push their kids in a way that they're learning from their own mistakes. Yeah, that makes sense why they would do better. Because they would become better adults because they're learning from parents who are good parents. Maybe they're not in a good situation right now themselves because they didn't have good parents, but... By them teaching their kids how to succeed, they're making better kids. So it's not that Head Start itself is creating this. It's that the types of parents that are choosing this program are creating better kids, which that really points to what our real issue is in K-12 education and why government spending will never fix it. Because it's about the parents and the parents' ability to deliver children who are there and ready to learn and aren't going to be a huge distraction to the rest of the kids there. Well, coming up after this, we're going to discuss uh, Lexington's looking at a taxpayer-subsidized Lyft-slash-Uber system, one of the dumbest ideas I've ever heard. Uh, Senate Bills 143 and Senate Bill 23 coming up for a vote. We'll talk about what those do. Um, we'll have more after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Kubrider Show, your source for Kentucky politics. As always, you want to reach out to the show, head on over to theandrewshow.com. Once again, that's theandrewshow.com. You can check out past shows as well as see a contact form to reach out. And you are back with The Andrew Kubrider Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Uh, turning now to the state legislature, Senate Bill 143, which is the Senate version of the amendment to uh, pass where non-U.S. citizens can't vote, putting that into the Constitution. Um, we had a version of that pass the House. We have a version passing the Senate. So it is clear that this constitutional amendment will be on the ballot this November. And why is that? Already non-U.S. citizen or non, yeah, non-citizens uh, can't vote. So why are they putting this in there? Well, one... Um, it's, it's twofold. One, you can look at it as a, a way to prevent a future where you could see uh, the federal government trying to hand down a ruling saying that non-U.S. citizens get to vote. So if the federal government, if Congress or somebody passes a law saying that non-U.S. citizens get to vote, well, now that this is in our state constitution, you have a conflict. Because remember, the federal constitution also allows states to run their own elections. 
And so the risk you run, if Congress comes down and says, yeah, non-U.S. citizens can vote, and if this isn't in our state constitution, you could see, um, what you could see is that the, uh, 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 if we have a Democrat governor, a Democrat attorney general, uh, you know, Democrat legislature, whatever it may be, you could see them not just acquiesce to the, the rule being handed down by the federal government instead of fighting it. But with this in our constitution now, it gives standing to a lot of people outside of just the government to, to say, no, I have a problem with this. And it basically mandates that no matter who's in control, Democrat uh, or Republican, that they will fight back on that type of ruling coming down from the federal government. So it's really a good long-term thinking idea, but generally speaking, our legislature doesn't think very long-term. We've talked about this before. So while the actual purpose behind the amendment is good, um, the inside baseball reasoning behind the amendment is that it will drive people to look down on the ballot and have an amendment to vote for. So they're putting forward a course. It looks like they, they may put forward a school choice amendment. Uh, because of Osborne putting forward his amendment uh, that will get pushed through, we'll see an amendment to end the, the end date for the legislature as well as allow them to call themselves back into session, an amendment that they tried to get passed in 2022. So we'll see that on the ballot. We'll see this. Um, we may see a, a trying to move elections and, and just a whole bunch of amendments um, that don't necessarily attract a lot of financial push. But if the idea is if you've got this really great amendment on there, it'll cause one conservatives that are maybe just showing up to vote for Trump in Kentucky to then turn and vote on the amendments and be in a predisposition to vote yes on amendments because they know one of them for sure they want to vote yes for. So that's a that's a purpose behind Senate Bill 143. And then to also kind of mirror this, you have Senate Bill 23 being considered in the Senate, which basically adds the homestead exemption uh, onto our ballots to be a constitutional amendment. So right now, the homestead exemption, if you're 65 or older and you're in a home that you purchased before you're 65, that property tax will not increase uh, as you get older, that that property tax will stay at the same assessed value Um that you purchased it when when you were 60 when you turned 65. And so basically this is a law now but moving that law into being a constitutional amendment once again that will push uh, a lot of people to look down on the ballot and vote yes. Um, I say, why stop here? Uh, the very fact that our property tax on our home is is based upon what some assessor thinks it will be, and and truthfully, not that doesn't represent the value of the home because, of course, the value of a home is what you can sell it for. <laughs> I think we all agree. I mean, you know, there's people out there who think, hey, we should have no property tax at all. I hear you there. There's some arguments to be had, but at least what we should agree upon is who is the government to determine determine what our home is worth. They have no, historically speaking, the government's awful at figuring out what the free market's going to do. We might talk about that here in a bit, but most importantly here, um, they, who are they to say what it's worth? And then if they get it wrong, so for an example, if they come in and say my home's worth 400000 and they've been taxing me at 400000 for five years, and then the sixth year I sell it, and I only sell it for three hundred, do I get a refund on a $100,000 value of my property tax that they've mis-evaluated it for the last five years? No, of course not. This is an unrealized gain. And so if you want to charge a property tax, it should be based upon whatever you last purchased the home for period. That should be what you're charged tax on. This idea that it needs to keep adjusting is absolutely, in my opinion, ridiculous on its face. The government has no 
business trying to guess what something is worth uh, that hasn't been put up for sale in the free market, um, especially something like a home where it varies so much because what a home is worth is exactly what a person's willing to pay for it. Not a dollar more, not a dollar less. So that certainly, uh, I think, is a conversation. Um, Lexington, uh, city council member Chuck Ellinger, uh, is is literally the stupidest idea I ever heard of. Um, and he's supposed to be the conservative in city council. And so his grand idea is to create a taxpayer-subsidized Uber-type service. Um, so this coming from a Herald Leader article by Beth, Beth Musgrave. Um, and, and just kind of glancing through it, the way the program is supposed to work, he wants $400,000 in order to fund a pilot program of basically an on-demand, they call it microtransit, basically an on-demand Uber-type service that is subsidized by the taxpayer. And you would hail the ride in the app, um, or perhaps there'd be meeting places or so on and so forth. Basically, they're saying that, um, well, you know, going to a bus stop, that's not enough. Uh, you need to be able to be picked up right in your home as a citizen, and us, the taxpayer, is who should pay for it, picking you up right at your home. And, and to which I say, um, you know, when you read through the proposal, and, and I'm dead serious, this is uh, right here from the proposal, from the article here, um, microtransit is an on-demand transportation service enabled by technology, said Councilman Chuck Ellinger who put the issue into committee, it works like a public subsidized Uber or Lyft service. Riders can use an app or call to make an appointment. The ride share would operate either from a bus stop or fixed area, or it can do door-to-door service. To which I ask, what is the point of our bus service then? Why can't they ride the bus? It involves too much planning. What? They can't, they can't wait at the bus stop? They, I, I get it. I know. Bus rides can take an hour or two to get to where you're going. But apparently planning your life out to that degree in order to get a free taxpayer paid for ride, that's, that's too much. That's too much to handle. So instead, we're going to go ahead and just have a Lyft or Uber service to come and pick you up right there at the bus stop. So that way, you don't have to wait for the bus right at the taxpayer's uh, expense, too. We don't want you waiting out there too long. We want the taxpayers to go ahead and push forward and fund that kind of thing right there for you. Microtransit. Um, <laughs> and what's funny is now you could say, well, Andrew, maybe they're just going to fund this rate out of the Lextran budget, in which case maybe it's just filling in for buses. Maybe there's buses are driving routes where really it's not even a full bus ride's worth. And so actually it would save us money, right? Well, uh, um, this is according to Chuck right here. We have 400000 that we can set aside for a pro- pilot program, Ellinger said. That 400000 is not budgeted through Lextrans, said Emily Elliott, planning coordinator and community development for Lextran. Funding is a major concern for Lextrans, he said. What Lextran doesn't want is for Michael Transit to take away from its fixed bus service. So uh, Lextran isn't even saying they want to replace busing with uh, uh, private individuals handling transportation because they're saying, look, we don't want that out of our budget. Now, in order to get picked up at your home, so you say, well, Andrew, that's picking up at your bus stop. Maybe this will pick you up at your home. That could be helpful for people like that have problems with mobility. But there's already wheels operated by Lextran, which handles that service for disabled and elderly. So if, if this, this is absolutely ridiculous that we would even think to fund this. We already have buses. We already have them. 
Why do we need a tax-subsidized lift service? Why? Because you don't want to wait at the bus stop? Well, then buy a car. You don't get to reach into my pocket and take out money because you don't want to be inconvenienced by having to wait on a bus for too long. That's ridiculous. Okay? We're already paying for you to ride on a bus. But hey, that's too inconvenient for me. Let's just get more money from... And the fact that so-called conservative Chuck is the one pushing this? Come on, man. Don't show up to another Lexington Republican Party meeting claiming to be a conservative when you're putting forward things like this. Well, coming up after this, speaking of party stuff, there's some interesting party information coming out of Jesmond County, as well as an interesting announcement about hydrogen fuel cell factory up there in Michigan. We'll be digging into that after this short break. You're listening to The Andrew Cooper Writer Show. And you are back with The Andrew Cooper Writer Show, your source for Kentucky politics. Interesting news coming out of Jesmond County Republican Party. Um, the party has decided as a county party to endorse Thomas Jefferson, who's running in a state house race against uh, incumbent Killian Timoney, uh, citing the many uh, problematic votes that Timoney has had where he sided quite often with Democrats, especially on social issues like the transgender issues, school choice issues. Um, you know, a, a lot of basically it is hard to exactly see where Timoney isn't. Uh, siding with Democrats, especially on education issues. He will always, almost always side with Democrats on education issues. Part of it probably has to do with the fact that he works for Fayette County Public Schools. Um, so definitely he's got a little bit of a financial incentive uh, to push for that, of course. Um, sources tell me that Fayette County Public Schools is very much aware of how much they can lean on him to get him to vote the way they want him to. And so obviously he's not representing necessarily the values of the party very well, so they decide to endorse Thomas Jefferson. This comes on the heels of Harding County endorsing uh, um, Josh Calloway, incumbent against primary challenger Julie Cantwell, for the same type of reason that the general viewpoints held by Julie, like Timoney, is not very well, does not coincide with the Republican Party platform or the Republican conservative values that they wish to forward. Now, this does bring up a big debate and a debate that's moved to the national level, as we've seen Ron and McDaniel stepping down from that Republican Party chairmanship role at the national level. And that is what is the party there to do? Is the party there to only get Republicans, anybody with an R next to their name, we're going to try to get you elected uh, into generals. That's all we care about. And, and that's it. Is the party just a vehicle to win elections, nothing more and nothing less? If that's the case then the party staying out of primaries would obviously be the advisable position. And in fact, in this vote, uh, the people who voted no on the endorsement did not vote no because they liked Timoney. In fact, many of them expressed that they would be voting for Thomas Jefferson against Timoney in this election. Um, no, they, they decided uh, that it was not the position of the party. The party should not be getting involved in endorsing in party primaries. Um, so that's one thought process, that the party's just there as a vehicle to win elections, and that's it. And and that could be, I think a lot of that could be a holdover for some of the uh, generation of Republicans that certainly were more part of when being a Republican in Kentucky wasn't cool, you didn't win by being a Republican in Kentucky, that literally anybody that was willing to put an R next to their name and run for an election was great because, um, you know, a Republican could probably not even win in the general, so we need to stay out of it, we need, we're struggling to even find Republicans, let alone two, to run for one office, to fight in a primary. 
Um, and so, you know, fight, pushing back against uh, people running with an R next to their name, representing the values, didn't make a lot of sense. Um, that could be a pushover. But now coming into this situation we're in, the question becomes, what is the, the party's job? Now, if you believe the party's job is to win elections, that's it, then you would be against this. But if you believe it's the party's job to forward the Republican Party platform, you would be for this. Four parties endorsing in primaries uh, with a vote as long as they're saying, hey, we recognize um, that this is important. I mean, turn to Boone County. Boone County came out and censured Ed Massey, who's running against T.J. Roberts uh, for a state house seat up there because Ed had a voting history when he was in the legislature of being very liberal. And so they called him out for that. And so now you can believe the party has always been there to for the Republican Party platform. And that belief actually gives you a little bit more flexibility in your um, ability to understand why we need to shift uh, gears as far as what our plan is. So back when, you know, Republicans in the House were in the minority, getting involved in primaries in that way didn't make a lot of sense. But now that we have 80%, 81% of our state house is registered Republican, and we're not worried as much about, uh, uh, you know, having to fend off Democrats in general, certainly not in this next one, well, then fording the party platform isn't about winning general elections now. It's about getting the best, most conservative people we can through the primaries onto the general. So if your belief is that the party's there to ford the Republican Party platform, then you would think at some point when the Republican Party platform become so dominant in the legislature, it is important for the party to get involved in endorsing in primaries. But that opens up a whole nother can of worms of, well, who gets to decide who's conservative and who's not. And that means that those who are most involved get the vote, get to decide, which is why I encourage you to get involved with your local parties if you haven't, um, because that way you do get a vote. And if your local parties are trying to keep you out because they don't want your voice heard, because they want to keep it a good old boys club. They want to keep that 20% that are not very conservative at all. I'm talking about the McConnellites. I'm talking about, you know, the the uh, uh, Michael Adams types, the Nikki Haley types that make up about 20% of the Republican Party platform. That's when you got to get, get ahead of it on the reorgs and grab control. Because I tell you this much, those people, while they may speak out against party endorsements, blah, 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 they will work just as hard as certainly as a party, uh, maybe more behind the scenes than out in the open, to get elected the people they want to see elected. Uh, so it's just one thing, food for thought. Now, I do have some news coming out of Michigan. It appears that Honda and GM have put together a hydrogen uh, uh, facility together that has started to go ahead and create um, hydrogen, uh, looks like engines, and push forward hydrogen into the market, which points to big trouble and the reason why that Bashir and the state legislature probably shouldn't have given billions of dollars, well, half a billion dollars to Ford to build an electric battery plant because hydrogen will now become already other people that uh, um, don't want to use gas. Well, all they've had right now, for the most part, is electric. But if hydrogen starts to become a major push, it will surpass electric, uh, uh, I believe, electric vehicle battery, certainly. Um, and a reminder from this, so this is from Top Gear from 2008. This is a British motoring show from 2008. Um, and they did a little piece on a hydrogen Honda car. This is 2008. Uh, let's take a listen to that. So far, most electric cars have been appalling little plastic snot boxes that take all night to recharge and then take half a minute to reach their maximum speed of 40 and then run out of juice miles from anywhere. 
But when the clarity runs out of juice, you just pull into a hydrogen filling station. The hydrogen is compressed into a liquid, so it's a bit like petrol. You fill it just like a petrol car. And the only difference is, because this is under pressure, you have to lock it with this lever. Terribly important that if you don't do that, you get hydrogen all over your shoes. That whole process has taken somewhere between two and three minutes and has given me another 270 miles of driving. And there's another bonus with hydrogen. The only emission from this car is water. Because and so in 2008, that car had a range of 300 miles, went zero to 60 in eight to nine seconds and a top speed of around 100 miles an hour, about like a normal, just normal passenger family car. Um, now, the reason why uh, electric had caught on initially instead of hydrogen and why it looked like, quote unquote, the future is because, well, the infrastructure is kind of already in place for electric. And by that, we mean that the, the electric lines are there. It's very easy to plug your cars in. Hydrogen cars require hydrogen fuel pumps, which they do have some in California, but they require hydrogen fuel pumps, that hydrogen to be made and delivered to these uh, uh, facilities to fuel up cars, so on and so forth. However... Electric took off because it was so accessible. As long as you have a plug, you can charge your car. But the very reason why electric will hit huge scalable concerns is why, in my opinion, I believe that hydrogen is and will probably end up being the future, at least a contender here, because the infrastructure for the switch is basically all there. We already have pumps. We already have oil companies that can switch over to hydrogen manufacturing. And this is just all my opinion here. Um, hydrogen manufacturing, throwing a few hydrogen pumps use. Um, but more importantly, the hydrogen system more aligns with our current thought process when it comes to how we operate vehicles. You show up at a pump, you fill it up, it takes two to four minutes, and then you drive for another 300 miles. That is what we're used to when it comes to filling up our cars with gas. However, electric vehicles require a completely different life change. And also, quite frankly, the infrastructure for electric vehicles is far more expensive and way more government reliant. Because as electric vehicles become more popular, well, our grid just can't handle all these people plugging in their cars. And so electric vehicles is a hot hobby kind of type car. Uh, we're very popular and that's why Tesla grew. And that's why people started to think, well, electric's the future, but maybe it's not. And maybe it's hydrogen. I mean, you just heard from that purpose. And now we have Honda and GM manufacturing hydrogen engines in a joint venture. So that leaves a lot of questions. Was Kentucky so smart to invest so much? Into our electric vehicle battery plants? Well, the future will tell. I'll, of course, stay on top of it. Well, you're listening to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Have a great rest of your day.